and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Sam Lebowitz, Jag Hendon, for the 110th time. We regret last episode's error in which we said it was episode 108 for the second consecutive podcast. During the recording, it was episode 109. We come to you in the daytime on this very, very frigid Saturday afternoon on February the 4th as we record. Uh, hope you're staying warm among, you know, amid the, the polar vortex wherever you are. And Jack and I uh, are excited to bring you yet another episode of the Pleasant Good Podcast. Jack, how are you? I'm good. I'm really excited to get into episode 109. Um, hey. It'll be, uh, you know, uh, I'm okay. It's brick outside. It's really, really cold. Uh, really enjoyed last week. Had a great time. We haven't really talked about this, but we went to the 98th annual dinner uh, for the Baseball Writers Association of America Awards. We'll have a lot to talk about on that. Still kind of riding the high of that experience. Um, doing doing well. Uh, pitchers and catchers, nine days. We're almost there. Nine Pretty days. Close. We are a little more than half a week into February. And uh, yeah, pitchers and catchers report in just about a week and a half, which is really, really exciting. Uh, it's been a very, very mild winter. In the Northeast, I think is my experience, and and um, the <laughs> temperatures with the wind chill dropping into the negatives the last couple of days and today included. No bueno, not very fun. So it's negative where you are. Yeah, it's like here in New Jersey. It's like right now it's like nine degrees, but okay. it feels like negative nine ish or so with the wind chill. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'll be venturing outdoors today at all uh i'm in a i'm in my my family tv room in my house which has lots of windows so it's nice and warm in here because it is sunny which is nice yes so yes. it was windy as super windy last night oh Not yeah anymore. yeah, but... yeah. i was on the highway yesterday i was driving on the highway yesterday my car's pretty big it's pretty tall it's a it's a dodge durango and there were points where it was so windy that I could feel the car. It felt like the car was about to tip, like not not about to tip, but like I could feel the wind against the car, and I was like, "Whoa, that's a that's a weird feeling." Okay, Pete Alonso, that's not funny. That's God not funny. that's not funny. Uh, um, he wasn't hard. Wonderful okay. weather we're having. Yeah, wonderful okay. weather we're having. I guess we'll segue from that into what <laughs> you and I experienced last weekend: the awards dinner, the ninety eighth annual. Baseball Writers of Baseball Writers Association of America, bit of a mouthful. Awards dinner hosted by the New York chapter of the BBWAA. For those of you who aren't aware of what that is and why we went, first of all, anyone can go to it as long as you buy a ticket. And and Jack, you it was very kind of you to give me the extra ticket that you had that was gifted to you uh and, and to invite me and we had a lovely time got to dress up in suits we got to yes. see some some baseball people got to eat a nice catered meal at the the hilton in midtown manhattan it was nice so what the writers awards dinner is is they they take all the 
previous season's award winners, the MVPs, the Cy Youngs, the Rookie of the Years, uh, Rookies of the Year, the Managers of the Year, uh, all eight of those guys who won the major awards. In addition to the New York Chapter Award winners, these are kind of the, I don't know, more extraneous uh, achievement awards, um, not always ex- explicitly clear on maybe what they are for. Like Albert Pujols winning the Long and Meritorious Service Award, you can kind of gleam into what that award is for. Yeah. Uh, Edwin Diaz winning the Good Guy Award is for cooperation with media. And then you have some more that are like, you know, Gary, Keith, and Ron winning the uh, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke Award. Still not really clear what that award is for. That one, yeah, that one's basically like, it's for like a trio of people. doesn't necessarily have to be a trio, but the point of it, it's called Willie, Mickey, and Duke because you have this common thread that's linking multiple people together. The idea being that as a conglomerate, like Gary, Keith, and Ron linked to one another have this value that like the Willie, you know, Mickey Duke trio would have. So it's a lot about just looking at a group of people and saying, I like that group, Um, which I thought was sweet. Uh, I thought Gary, Keith, and Ron, uh, they were all there. Most of these guys were there too, uh, to accept these awards. So you got to, you know, Gary giving just a, a great speech. He basically uh offered his opinion that it should be renamed the Lindsay uh Bob and Ralph award obviously Lindsay Nelson uh Bob Murphy Ralph Kiner I thought that was very tender whole thing was great I mean there's this culture that like we don't really I think appreciate enough as baseball fans but especially as baseball fans of like a New York team where everyone's sort of has this historical it's almost a lineage that these that you know all these players and uh I guess not players but writers and and personalities share with one another and like they were all in this room together just having some you know having having a nice dinner with their families uh wasn't really a it wasn't really an event where you are supposed to like go up to people and and mingle I think a lot of people were there simply to get autographs from players um, we were not seated in like the the credentialed VIP section, um, but we were with like, you know, we were with some friends of Mike Puma. So we got to interact with them a little. And um, it was just even from a distance like that, it was really, I think it was really humbling to to be a part of. And I would love to go back next year. I mean, for me, I really thought I was going to go and get to schmooze with professionals. It's not a networking event. You learn that pretty quickly. And but even so, it was really gratifying. Yeah, it is. It's it's this big ballroom. Right. And they've got a stage set up and a dais and all the players and award winners and some of the presenters, too, are sitting up there on the dais. And there's this podium in the middle of the dais where obviously they the presenters go up and the and the people you know make the speeches and and so on brian hoke i think is the chairperson of the new york chapter right now and he was the he was the mc he was cracking some cringy jokes all night long some of them hit some of them didn't Uh, real wise guy it was funny when his nose started bleeding yeah that did happen they won't tell you about that but we were there he had a little matt harvey moment in the middle of uh because he you know it's like a cycle so you have hoke who comes up and introduces the presenter cracks a couple jokes invites the presenter up and then the presenter comes up tells an anecdote whatever 
and, and it introduces the award winner that he's introducing. And then the award winner comes up and usually talks for the least amount of time of the three because he's just saying, you know, I'm very, very happy to have won this award. Thank you very, very much. Um, thank you to my family. Good night. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of how it goes. You know, there's the dinner portion and then there's the award ceremony stuff. And the award ceremony stuff is, is I thought was really fun. But you're right. It's not exactly a networking event, although it is very much like a who's who of especially New York baseball people. Like yeah. we were kind of looking around and being like, oh, that's like you said, Mike Puma came over to our table because we were sitting at the same table as people that he's friends with. Uh, I was like, oh, that's Mike Puma or oh, that's Laura Albanese uh, or oh my God, sitting up there on the stage, that's that's Sarah Lang. It's like, I, I yeah. you know, these are people that I watch on TV pretty frequently mm-hmm. or Gary, Keith and Ron when they, you know, were up there or Howie was also there when, you know, winning an award or like these are writers that I follow on Twitter. You know, these are yeah. people that I interact with pretty regularly, or I, at least I interact with their work pretty regularly. And I'm looking around, I'm like, Oh wow. And that's nothing to say about the players themselves. Cause there's plenty of players there. Cause obviously mm-hmm. the award winners are there and you're like, yeah, that is a uh, Aaron judge um, standing, yeah. standing there next to uh, Julio Rodriguez, just kind of hamming it up during the cocktail hour. That is uh, mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. my God. That's Rico Bronia. Yeah, Rico Bronia came up and presented. Buck Showalter was there. Yeah, like I said, Howie was there. There were executives from certain teams, like uh, Dana Brown, the new GM of the Astros, was there. Kim Ang, uh, Kim Ang was there walking around. And obviously, Justin Verlander was there. So Kate Upton was there. Like Kate Upton walked right past me at one point, and I was like, "Oh, that is Kate Upton." Uh, and it's not just that, like at, at coat check, as we were leaving the event, I shook hands with Dave Sims, the, the Mariners longtime broadcaster. And I told him right. how much I appreciated his work. And I told him what I want to do for a living. He told me, and I quote, he said, keep plugging along. And yeah. I'm like, all right, Dave Sims, I'm going to keep plugging along, man. Uh, You're so- missing one of the, the, the fundamental uh, experiences that we had there. It was like one of our first when we showed up and we saw that the elevator, the escalator in front of us wasn't working. Oh my God. And Terry Collins and Jay Horowitz just walked ahead of us and started walking up the broken escalator. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's on like the third floor and the yeah. second floor is where the coat check is. We go up, check our coats. And then we're like, all right, I guess people are going up to the third floor for this thing. And we we walk over to the escalator. And like you said, it's, it's stopped, but like, that's just Terry Collins and Jay Horowitz walking up the escalator ahead of us, three paces ahead of us. And then they both kind of stop right in front of the mouth, at the top of the escalator. And I got to the top before you did. And I, I didn't touch Terry, but I, I basically brushed past him and said, excuse me, Terry. And he was like, Oh, yep. Yeah. So, he would just stop at the top of an escalator and just we were, reboot. We were there for 30 seconds and I, I addressed Terry Collins by name, which was, yeah fascinating it was such an interesting experience top to bottom it's really mm-hmm. cool a lot of the speeches were really cool i guess we'll talk about you know our favorite moments but like aaron judge paul goldschmidt obviously there justin verlander sandy alcantara julio rodriguez michael harris michael harris was dressed to the nines i think he was the yeah. best dressed player there by far yeah Gary francona buck showalter and uh, jeremy pena winning the you know for his uh his postseason mvp award was there as well, as was Edwin Diaz for his good guy award and Albert Pujols for, like I said, the long and meritorious service award. The only player, I guess, who was being honored that wasn't there was Anthony Rizzo for a community service award, although he 
he sent in a like a video submission to you know for his his brief little thing uh and then there were some some interesting presenters as well i guess which uh you know we'll talk about there was there was one in particular who maybe not for super positive <laughs> reasons sticks out in in our minds that we'll, we'll talk about that very odd experience to end the night but uh yeah who was your uh, who was your favorite of the players to uh to listen to um that's that's a tough one i really liked uh i really liked julio's speech um i thought rico bronia introducing terry francona was a very uh a very positive and um wholesome speech where he basically outlined like this is the kind of manager that when you lose a game as a team you not only feel like you've lost a game and that sucks that you've lost a game but you feel like you've let terry down um i thought that was just something to hear from a player that was very um just very sweet and 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 thoughtful and i think it's something that as a fan you especially with a manager who's been around as long as terry francona you sort of you get a sense that that is the kind of person, but you need to hear from the horse's mouth that they are that kind of person. And it's a, it's a very, um, it's a very honest moment where you can sort of feel some kind of connection uh, between what you're watching and what the guys you're watching are watching. Um, It's not a player speech, but I thought that Tim Healy's introduction of Edwin Diaz for the good guy award was one of the best speeches. Um, I thought it was, it was something that I had never thought about, but really if you're, you know, when you work on the beat, you have to have these articles, these game recaps in particular, you need to have them ready as soon as that last out is recorded. Um, the story can't go up the next morning, like it needs to go up now. Um, so these guys are plugging away during the game. Obviously, if there's a huge uh, upset during the ninth inning or a huge plot twist, you have to rewrite your whole article. The whole tenor of it changes because the whole outcome of the game changes. Um, it was, I thought it was really, uh, it was pretty funny just to explain how part of what made Edwin Diaz such a good guy was for the writers. It was always such a treat watching him come out to pitch the ninth inning because they knew when he came out that their stories would not change. The three outs would be recorded immediately and everything would be smooth sailing. I thought that that was, it's an angle that I had never really considered. There was a lot for me, just as someone who for a long time thought that they wanted to go into writing about baseball and sometimes still kind of plays with it, honestly. Like it it was really um, eye-opening to listen to and sort of absorb uh, that fraternity of, of, of writers um, near and far who sort of share those kinds of experiences with one another and get to enjoy them and share them. Um, that was for me, my favorite moment, but there were also a lot of other ones that I haven't touched on that maybe, I don't know, we'll get to, maybe we don't. It was a really great event. I couldn't really name all of them. We don't have that much time. Yeah. I I agree. That was fun with, uh, with Tim and Edwin. I think my favorite player specifically to, uh, (laughs) his speech, was was just kind of uh, engaging and entertaining to me was uh Sandy Alcantara yeah. who he he comes up to the stage he's got you know instead of having his little speech on his phone like like Justin Verlander was like scrolling on his phone for his his speech or or just off the top of his head he had a piece of, he had a piece of paper laminated like yeah. Sandy Alcantara comes up there with a laminated sheet of paper <laughs> to read off for his acceptance speech 
And then after giving this whole acceptance speech, he looks over at the table that his family is at. And he says, me and my son are the only people in my family who speak English. So now I'm going to say the exact same thing in Spanish. Yeah. And then he proceeds to say the exact same thing in Spanish. And it was very, very wholesome, cute little moment. I think the players, the players don't often have a lot to say yeah. uh, because not all these guys are very, you know, are, are, are talkers necessarily. They're, they're not mm-hmm. all talkers and, and guys like, Alcantara and, and Edwin Diaz are not native English speakers, so they might not be as comfortable uh, speaking in front of a crowd in English. Like Edwin's speech was very, very quick. Um, but he did also mention in that in that moment, he was like, uh, when I first came to New York, I didn't speak any English. And so for me to be up here and accepting this award in English, I think is cool, which was which was yeah. nice. And you you really you brought cool. up yeah, you you mentioned something. You had a great point after he said that to me when we were like chatting about it. You you said, "Wow, I never even thought about that perspective." That when he came to New York in 2019, when he had his worst season as a Met, and he was under all this fire from the media, he didn't speak any English, which adds another level of the difficulty that uh, foreign players uh, mm-hmm. when they come to New York and maybe not and maybe don't perform as well as they they hope. Uh, how how much more difficult that can be yeah uh, and to still be available like every day to the media like that's not an easy thing to do it's not something I would expect that many people to do even um like that was that was a huge component of Edwin Diaz winning that award was that he I mean for me I thought it was I went into it thinking oh they're just going to talk about how the trumpets gave people all these fun stories to write about um the trumpets really were, like took a backseat to the whole essence of the guy's uh you know growth as a as a as a player as a as a figure and it's growth from a pretty high point already because he was even I think at what a fan would consider to be the guy's weakest Edwin Diaz was still a tremendously open and honest person very Um, accountable yeah yeah and uh I I did enjoy that moment quite a bit I think my favorite presenter of the night was probably Buck. Buck spoke mm-hmm. twice, once to accept his manager of the year award and, and the second time to uh, present Justin Verlander with his Cy Young award. Uh, Buck is a great storyteller. We love listening to him in post games, obviously, but he was really in, in prime form uh, during that awards dinner. There was this one odd little moment that bears mentioning in which he kind of insinuated that um, Justin Verlander had a hot wife, which he does, but like he said it in kind of an odd way. Uh, he, he said, he said something about how, you know, he tells players that the most important thing is not, you know, their performance on the field, but uh, how they are with their family, how they are as a, as a father and as a husband. And that's the most important thing. And he tells players, he says that if you mess up your marriage, if you mess up your family, I will haunt you. And then Verlander is sitting in that first seat next to the podium on the dais. And he looks to Verlander and he points at him and says I will haunt you um, specifically you which Buck is Showalter like, hates Tom Brady <laughs> it was just like alright yeah I mean you're, you're making a joke about him having a supermodel wife that's a little yeah. uncomfortable especially because in the same introductory thing he said something about how he and his wife were about to celebrate 40 years of marriage and she was supporting mm-hmm. him through when he made $750 a, a month in the seventies when he was, or in the eighties, when he was first getting into baseball as a, as a minor league player. Uh, and I was like, yeah, okay, that's, 
interesting, but still engaging, still fun to listen to. Um, Buck is a hoot, as they yes. say. I think my favorite speeches were the more, I guess, the, maybe the more emotional ones, really, because yeah. you had two that really um, stuck out to me. Uh, and it bears mentioning a third, Mike Vaccaro, opening up about how he had the the lower part of his left leg amputated over the summer and, and now is walking uh, pretty well with a prosthesis, considering he's only about five, six months out mm-hmm. uh, from from that procedure and, and you know he's going to be working again around the ballpark as as the new york post's premier baseball columnist uh bears mentioning uh he and howie rose were were both honored for the same award uh the um the arthur and milton richmond you gotta have heart award yeah. uh which goes to somebody who has kind of fought through a, a very unique kind of adversity to continue you know to uh to be a member of the the baseball landscape and especially the New York baseball landscape. Um, it's that kind of award. So Vaccaro obviously opening up about his health issues and his procedure on his left leg. Uh, that was why he was honored. And, um, you know, Joel Sherman set him up as the presenter. And then Vaccaro uh, had a, had a nice speech uh, on top of that. But yeah. the two that I, I really that have stuck with me and i think you'll agree were mm-hmm. sarah lang's speech for the casey stengel you could look it up award to uh, yeah. recognize um an accomplishment that was uh, not previously honored by the new york chapter right and then howie rose's speech for the same award that vaccaro won yeah. uh in which he opened up about how he had bladder cancer which is not something he had previously disclosed it's now public mm-hmm. um and why he missed time at the end of 2021 and then why he didn't travel as much uh in 2022 which which opened up more reps for a third broadcaster in the Mets radio booth and why going forward they're going to have a third uh radio broadcaster uh for mm-hmm. the Mets that it was bladder cancer that he had his bladder removed uh and ha- it was uh, a, a radical bladder procedure is what it was called um endoscopy a radical endoscopy something like that Mm -hmm. in which they basically construct a new bladder out of part of his intestine and his recovery from that and i could listen to how we talk for hours but his speech and sarah lang's speech were both really really powerful and and engaging and and i think mlb network is airing this dinner at some point if they haven't already it's it's worth seeking out both of them yeah yeah absolutely um they both got standing ovations for their speeches um, sarah lang's got two two see yeah sarah lang's got two standing ovations i thought that um in both instances they they these speeches really hit at uh and show you just how like how strong a bond uh these people have with one another um you know sarah buster olney introduced sarah lang's uh you know as the recipient of this award and uh the the real thrust of his speech was that sarah was one of the most thankful people that he had ever worked with that every email she had sent every criticism you know every bit of criticism she received she always made a point of thanking them for uh for giving her something to work with for showing her something new um i mean this is something that is 
pretty well known if you know Sarah Langs. She's just like a one of the more positive forces in the entire landscape of baseball. Um, and she proceeded to give a speech that was about five minutes of her thanking different people uh, for their support, for you know the role that they played in her um, getting to where she was in her career. Um, I mean, and if that wasn't enough, just the sheer, I think, quantity of people that she was going down the line naming, it's something that really illuminates just how loved, uh, just how strong these communities are. Um, and we do a lot of, I think, I'm especially guilty of this, where um, I get very critical of writers, especially if I don't agree with them. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, that I'm necessarily uh, in the wrong for for being cynical, because I think that's something that makes writing better is the constant critique. But uh, I think at times I've definitely failed to acknowledge just how just how respected uh, these people really are amongst one another, um, just how hard they work for each other to make each other better. Uh, Sarah Lang's speech was easily the the strongest indication that night of um, just how much everyone in that room cares for one another and just how much everyone in that room feeds off of one another um, in terms of in terms of that support. Uh, it was, yeah, I mean, it was really, really powerful. I think that's a great word that you use, Sam. And it was really, I mean, I was, for a moment there, I was holding back tears. It was, it was a really special uh, moment. And I would have given a third standing ovation if, if there'd been one. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, this is a woman who's not even 30 and is right. fighting through ALS and, and the support of the whole room behind her was, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was just something that I, I think it's a feeling that I'm not going to forget anytime soon. And, and, um, it was really nice to be part of that, you know, for, for, you know, Sarah Lynx probably doesn't know who we are, yeah, but we know who she is and we're grateful to know who she is. Uh, and we're grateful to have, uh, I've been two people in that crowd standing up mm -hmm. for her and clapping and listening to this, this speech while she sat, uh, in her in her chair with a microphone in front of her she didn't get up she didn't go to the uh the podium um they brought a microphone to her and she just talked and thanked people and it's a lesson that i've, I've you know i i'm trying to take something out of it too the gratefulness mm -hmm. that that she was talking about that buster only was talking about for her you know i'm trying to make a career for myself in, in baseball media too and, and i'm i'm trying to give that to people that i interact with too that gratefulness for their time that uh you know, thankfulness for, uh, for anything that I'm given. And, uh, I think it's a good lesson to take out of, out of her speech and, and out of her, her whole experience is, um, just being grateful. And I'm grateful for the, uh, the, the fact that I got to go to this dinner at all. It was a really fun experience. It was a nice little window into, uh, the fact that, you know, we, we often interact with these people, as names on a phone screen or as mm -hmm. faces on a TV screen uh, or as, you know, players on a baseball field. But like, these are humans, man. Like these are people. Uh, and it's cool to interact with them in, uh, in this very, very kind of personal, personable and personal way. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of my first experience really 
doing that on a on a macro scale uh yeah it was cool i really enjoyed it i i would easily go back to this i would recommend people if they have the opportunity to go uh i understand the tickets are fairly expensive but if you have the opportunity to go i recommend going it's really cool they give out this program they call it a scorecard or a scorebook and uh you know within the program is all these you know, stories written by members of the media. I mean, Laura yeah. Albanese wrote the story on, on how he rose in this yeah. program. Uh, and they're, it's really good writing. Yeah, no, it's great. It's, I, I don't typically hang on to programs, uh, but this one is, this is a keeper. It was a great experience. I want to thank my stepfather for, um, yeah, maybe the best Christmas gift uh, I've, I've gotten to open up. Uh, I cannot wait to go back. If you're somebody who, likes to save up for something maybe it's like maybe you're someone who saves up to go to a concert or saves up to buy a uniform saves up for something like this is the kind of thing you save up for uh if you're an experiences person yes if you like an experience and you're a baseball fan and you want to experience something like this this was a good experience yeah yeah and uh, you know, thank you to to Brian Hoke and everybody at the New York chapter for putting together a you know great dinner. Next year will be the 99th. Uh, year after that will be the hundredth. Uh, it's also worth noting that they did a lot of uh, catching up because this was the first dinner that they had had since the pandemic, since before the pandemic. There was no dinner in 2020. There was no dinner in 21 or 22. Um, this was the first dinner they had had since. So it was, um, or no, no, no. This was the first since. They had had one in 2020 because it was before the pandemic had hit 21 and 22. They didn't have one, but it was, you know, I'm sure for them, it was really uh, a wonderful experience to get to see each other again. Um, you forget that sometimes that the pandemic still sort of uh, leaves people scattered um, and people are starting to get back together in that way. And that was, yeah, that was very sweet. Um, we didn't really get to talk about the disaster that was the Spike Lee speech introducing Aaron Judge, but yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like... <laughs> At the time, I was sort of uh, blown away by how bad it was in comparison with every other speech. But in hindsight, it's it's very funny. The guy literally just commanded the stage for 10 minutes. It was the longest introduction by far. Uh, there was no direction. It was just the guy talking about himself. Uh, but it was, made, it was super unfocused. Uh, and Aaron Judge was kind of like, he he almost didn't know what to say when he accepted the, the award, um, which is kind of the that's a mark of like a really bad introduction when uh the person coming up to accept the award doesn't even know how to reconcile what you have said so yeah it was a uh, pretty bad <laughs> it's made a little bit worse by the fact that he kind of teed himself up as if he had something really profound to say right he introd he um he asked judge to join him at the podium before he gave it off to judge yeah. It's, it's something he said, I want to have a conversation with you, Aaron. And then he proceeded to not have a conversation with Aaron. He proceeded to talk about how he grew up a Mets fan, rambled about the 69 Mets for like five minutes. He yeah. named a whole he remembered bunch, of, a bunch of guys at one point. Yeah. He just like, gave a shout up. out to Ken Boswell. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. He just That's my job. He, <laughs> he rattled off a bunch of names from the 69 team while Judge who is about two and a half feet taller than this man is just awkwardly standing behind him. Yeah. Chuckling, holding his hands in, you know, in front of him. Like he doesn't know what to do. 
if you've ever been to a birthday party and like some five-year-old comes up to you and just starts like yelling about dinosaurs and you just kind of have to stand there and be like yeah wow that's uh -huh. basically in terms of size in terms of substance that's kind of what this was yeah like, spike it was, was also, just spike lee sharing his he brain was like, he was like weirdly leaning against the podium too and like yeah. Uh, and then he segued really, really poorly into uh, saying how, despite how he grew up a Mets fan, the thing that made him a Yankee fan now is was Derek Jeter. Um, yeah, he, he, it didn't even end up being about Aaron Judge. It was just it, Derek Jeter. It was Derek Jeter. What he was trying to do was saying, you know, Jeter was that guy. He was the captain. And now Judge is the guy. And Judge is the captain. He just didn't do a very good job of doing that. It was not an easy presentation to listen to. Yeah, uh, it did not exactly tee up. And Judge was the final speaker of the night. Judge, yeah, as the MVP award winner in the American League, and the new single season home run record holder in the American League. Judge is the big ticket guy. He's the guy on the cover of the program, and he is the last speaker of the night. He's the last award to get accepted, and so Spike Lee is the last presenter, and he just fumbled it. Man, it was ugly. It was not. It was in retrospect. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but it was like funny in that way that uh, like and I think you should leave skit can be kind of funny where it's like, yeah, oh, this is not easy to watch. He's making everyone uncomfortable. Yes, but it's funny nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, and then he teased it up to judge and judge, I think, spoke for about 30 seconds. It was like, yeah, thank you. I, you know, yeah. it's great honor. Yeah. Good night. Well, he won three awards. It wasn't even just accepting the MVP award. Right. He he. um. He had I'm, I'm looking through this now because they have all these. Yeah, he won Toast of the Town, which is for New York's fan favorite. And he won New York Player of the Year Award, too. Like he was the headliner. Um, not really the look, you know, loquacious sort as most of these baseball players tend to be. So, I mean, I'm sure the speech would have been a little short regardless, but it yeah, just certainly pretty, didn't help. If there is one suggestion I could impart for how to make this event better next year have like music the way the Oscars have music just in case you get another Spike Lee speech so that you can start playing the music when it gets to that point. Yeah, That's yeah. my only thing that I'm like, it would be better if you had this. Um, Cause I'm not going to be like no more Spike Lee. Like I'm sure he can give a better speech. He's a very smart and, and thoughtful person. He just kind of lost this one. And I think he lost the room, but um yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know how I feel ending on that note, because like I said, this was like a phenomenal night. But, you know, and in hindsight, it's very funny to think about. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was I'm sure if you guys watch this back when they screen it on MLB Network, you'll you'll understand what we were thinking. And everyone at our table, too, was like, where is he going with this? Like, what is happening? Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it was very I think you should leave. That's a good poll. Yeah, I it was weird. That was it was a weird note to end the night on, but it was still a really really good experience overall. Mm -hmm. Uh, really lovely. Again, I mean the the they they serve steak. Yep. Not even chicken or fish. It was like just steak. Like if you sat down for the dinner portion, you're getting steak. That's how you know it's a fancy event. So it was there nice was a little latka on the side too. They, yeah, they it knew was, their demographic was, really well. It was like like a steak cut thing with this uh, very jammy onion reduction sauce on top of the steak with like garlicky sauteed broccolini and this this kind of potato latka e almost like a like a like a fancy hash brown kind of thing. It was it was an interesting 
uh, dinner cash bar, which yeah. I don't know if I expected, but um, yeah. yeah, it was fine. All right. Well, we, we should probably talk about Jeff McNeil at some point. So I think we should, right. we should segue poorly like Spike Lee from uh, the awards dinner to uh, Derek Jeter, the squirrels extension. Let's do that now. Yep. So, okay. Jeff McNeil is going to be a New York Met for a fairly considerable amount of time in case you missed it. You know, this, this is pretty old news by now, but the Mets did extend Jeff McNeil to a four-year contract worth $50 million guaranteed with uh, a, a club option for 2027 worth an additional 15.75 mil. Uh, it buys out two years of arbitration in between two and three free agency seasons. And um, I mean, 2027 obviously is a fictional year. That's not a real year. But it's nice to know that Jeff McNeil is uh, still going to be here by then. Uh, it's nice that they did this. Yes, I agree. Batting title winner, fan favorite, versatile defender, uh, a guy who broke into the big leagues kind of late and uh, now has this little bucket of financial security for his family, for himself. Uh, he wasn't going to hit free agency until he was in his 30s. And uh, and now the Mets do right by him and uh, and buy out those first two free agency years for him. Um and he's he fifty million dollars, man. It's it feels almost like you know in, in today's baseball, it feels maybe like a smidge of an underpay because, you know, four years fifty mil feels like a drop in the bucket, especially for this Mets team. But like, yeah. still life changing money. Sure. And it's it's nowhere near as team friendly as those contracts that the Braves were giving out. So there's that. I think that if you were to look at the Arb years that got knocked out, it is a very Brave style underpay. If you look at this macroscopically as like the free agent years being bought out, this is around what I would expect to be the timeline of years McNeil has left. Um, and, it, you know, if you adjust for inflation, like in a couple of years, this thing is going to look really, really cheap. Uh, I still struggle morally to distinguish when I look at because the guy's basically what the next two arbitration years, he's going to net a combined like 16 million dollars. Like, that's crazy. That's a crazy underpay. I'm not, you know, I'm not, again, like you said, it's it's money that I would be happy to have. Um, it's also just market-wise, it's definitely beneath value. Um, if he wanted it and he signed it, then, like, I, I guess I'm happy for him. Um, I'm happy he's on the Mets. Uh, it does put me in a weird place where, I mean, I guess the only thing really distinguishing that from the Braves is that there's no Mets foundation that he's, donating money to maybe he's also donating to the Braves Foundation I don't know I'm 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 not sure if this is teaching me to be as outraged as I was by the Braves deals or to be less outraged about them in general um I'm probably a little bit more in the camp of this was an underpay the first two years but it is what he wanted so I can be I guess I'm happy for him um and I'm happy for the Mets so I mean, it's a, I think that he's much more the player we saw last year than the guy in 2021. Oh, um, yeah. I agree. You look at how he stacks up against other infielders across the last four years. He's easily one of the best. Um, 
I hope he gets his car. I hope Lindor gets him a car. Uh, that was part of their deal, and he still doesn't have a car. Um, I don't know. I don't have many takes on this beyond I'm really happy he's still a Met, and uh, I would have paid him more if I were Steve Cohen. Uh, but, I mean, really the thing that this is driven me to the really big conversation that's provoked I think amongst Mets fans maybe I mean maybe you agree on this is like now all eyes are on Pete Alonso because he's really the only guy left here between Nimmo McNeil and Alonso from that core that you'll want to keep around that you'll need to work to keep around we'll see what that looks like in terms of uh, a contract extension yeah and uh that's kind of been the chatter lately is like where where do you go next and and what does a Pete Alonso extension look like and before I guess we dive into that I just I think the McNeil conversation brings up something about McNeil and about value in general about yeah. the kind of player that he ha- is and, and what his skill set is it's a obviously a hit first hit over power with some defensive versatility that kind of thing like, what is that worth in baseball nowadays? Because there's not a lot of players with Jeff McNeil's skill set. I mean, we're going to see a lot more uh, of Luis Arise this year now that he's down in my – oh, excuse me, a little burp on air uh, – down with uh, with Miami now. Sick uh, eating brag, Sam. Sick digestion brag. Yeah, I had lunch before we hopped on. Sometimes sometimes uh, the body functions get carried away. Uh, yeah, we're going to see, obviously, a lot more Luis Arise. I think he's maybe the closest – comparable to McNeil in terms of like skill set and value and and he's a guy that uh is not under this kind of contract right now so we don't really know what the valuation on this kind of player is I think McNeil is better than our eyes period I think he's more athletic he's more versatile defensively uh and maybe has a smidge more gap to gap power than our eyes but uh it's just curious because I would have to look pretty deep into what the general consensus projections for McNeil and arbitration were this year because I don't have them off the top of my head but you know for this was going to be arb two for him mm-hmm. and then next year arb three and then the year after that free agency I'm just not sure you know 6.25 is what he's getting paid this year in this extension in 2023 I don't know if he's getting more than that in arb but also if you're buying out arbitration years usually that comes at a bit of a premium you're probably paying more in an extension to buy out our beers than yeah. you would uh in arbitration itself right so yeah, yeah i mean i mean if he was getting paid five mil in arbitration this year 6.25 you know that is a you know a bit more it's over a million more it's it's, mm-hmm. it's in pure financials that's a lot of money but in baseball financials it's it's not much Sure. 6.25 coming off of a batting title year. That is the thing that makes me feel like it's a bit of an underpay. The 10.25 the following year, that's more along the lines of maybe what he's, you know, primarily worth right now. And then buying out two for agency years at, at 15, seven, five piece. Yeah. Uh, that feels about right to me for a guy like this. You know, he's like, I love Jeff McNeil, but like, he's kind of the guy you want to be as the the third or fourth best hitter you've got in a lineup. Sure. Uh, because that's not a skill set you want to rely on as your most productive hitter. He's just a guy that you want to, you know, bat in the top of the lineup, get a lot of hits, that kind mm-hmm. of thing, which is great. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, I, I, he profiles the same way to me as like third or fourth best guy on a, on a world series winning team uh, or, you know, a, a team that wins a hundred games. Right. Cause no one really knows. Like I, I've said this before, no one really knows when you get in, what's going to happen world series wise. It's, it's all a crap shoot, but. Um, and that's what he was. Yeah. I still think that that kind of player, um, especially when you account for like future present and future value, I still think he's worth more than 10 million annually. Um, but I, you know, going back to the Braves thing, because I have speculated on this before, potentially perhaps not on our episodes, but amongst my circles of fans, like, you know, maybe these contracts have crazy deferrals in them. Maybe these guys are compensated for other things that we don't actually know about, right? Like there's gotta be a reason when this many players or I mean Nimmo's deal too we talked about it being a little bit of an underpay like sometimes those things there are deferrals there are clauses that we simply don't know about that add value to these deals maybe that's also a part of this um I I'm not you know I want to make clear I'm not reaching for any pitchforks on this sort of thing uh it does it does bring me to to consider how these negotiations work out you know more broadly but yeah I don't know okay. if you've got yeah I just have an answer on the projections for sure. uh, for McNeil let's, the let's uh, the MLB trade rumors arbitration projection for McNeil was 6.2 this year for yeah wow and uh he's making 6.5 so they okay. really i they, they really didn't have to uh bump up that that number at all really mm-hmm. 300,000 is uh obviously pennies for this uh this this regime whereas uh pete alonzo is projected to make about 15 mil in arbitration right he's so, he's a very interesting example here yeah we can get into that now because yeah. i mean the numbers that have been floated about alonzo the man i don't this the john morosi prediction that he set out on mlb network is so ludicrous to me i just don't see it he said eight years 200 mil i love pete alonso i think pete alonso is a really good player mm-hmm. i think he is you know the sixth or seventh best first baseman in baseball he is a very very important member of this offense he is the best power hitter on this roster by a considerable margin i do not think he is good enough to commit 200 million to because the whole big picture, the defense, the lack of athleticism overall, the fact that he's had a couple, you know, the, the offense has not necessarily been as consistent season to season. I mean, 2020 was was not an easy year for Pete, but like that was also a fake shortened season and, and he's been pretty good since. Sure. Uh, I don't know, man. I just am not convinced that i don't want i think it's also the eight years like i don't think that this is a skill set that maybe ages gracefully right historically eight years for a first baseman is like matt olsen got eight years um i think olsen is a freeman got six paul goldschmidt got five right like i think okay but freeman and goldschmidt were older right and better players and yes. I think Olsen, I think Olsen's a decent comparable, but Olsen, I also think, listen, I'm not sure Matt Olsen is better than Pete Alonso. He certainly didn't play like he was better than Pete Alonso in 2022. I'm just, I'm not sure that Alonso 
is able to aid. Like, I think Olsen might be a better bet long-term to be consistent with the level of production because I think Olsen is maybe a smidge more athletic. Than sure. Him. He's a better defender. There's valuation in that defense. Like, Olsen's a really good defensive first baseman. Pete is average at best. I don't know if I I don't know if teams are really valuing defense at first base as much as they're just valuing a sheer, especially now that the DH option is extended to the National League. Um, also, to your point about Goldschmidt, he was the same age as Alonzo when he signed his extension. Um, Fair. You do have to account for the fact that that market has changed in the four years since Goldschmidt signed that extension. But I do think that. I don't know if it's that out of the picture that someone looks at an offensive profile like Pete's, which say what you want about the athleticism. And we've seen the at-bats sometimes when he's in a funk, it's pretty unwatchable. He has always had a, a, a pretty respectable ability to get on base in the same way that Olsen has. Um, I tend to, I tend to believe that if you look at the offensive profile and I think a lot of teams are really with those sorts of players starting to prioritize that i think his market value on that alone would be in line with somewhere between an olsen and maybe a, a a freeman or goldschmidt i mean freeman maybe not because he's an exemplary offensive player and he like you said the defense is pretty good i mean if the defense is really good that matters i don't think it really matters if the defense isn't that good um the one thing that works against Pete is that he's at least at the moment he's running up against what's going to be a pretty strong class of offensive players uh during the 2025 offseason Juan Soto is going to be a free agent uh Anthony Rizzo is going to be a free agent Alex Bregman will be a free agent Tim Anderson will be a free agent and you have a lot of guys who have the potential to around that time be worth more money if they perform right guys like Tyler O'Neill Eloy Jimenez Juan Moncada, Glaber Torres, they're not those guys right now, but I think I could see any of them improving in a contract year to a point where they command a lot of money in free agency. Um, that would work for the Mets in terms of giving him a little bit less to work with because it's not a guarantee that Pete Alonso is going to command that much money. And I agree wholeheartedly with the point that he's not going to command much in the way of years. I don't think people look at first baseman in, in, in those sorts of terms as eight-year deals. Um, trying to remember what the, the structure of J.D. Martinez's contract was when the Red Sox signed it with him. It looks like a little bit of a comparable thing where you have someone that um, you're paying for the bat. You're paying for skills that are very demonstrably there. You really don't know what it's going to be like if you stick him anywhere on the field and you don't know wholly how those numbers are going to hold up relative to uh, relative to their age. Um I would, I really like, even though like, okay, look, is it heavy handed to suggest eight years for Pete Alonso? Yes. Is the AAV for Pete Alonso in a $200 million deal across eight years too much? I don't think so. Personally, I don't think so. Yeah. Let me, let me clarify that my problem yeah. is not necessarily with the money, like $200 million when you're looking at that just big number mm -hmm. looks like a lot of money to me. Right. For, for Pete Alonso specifically, but it's that way because it's eight years. That's $25 million a year. Yeah. That is more or less the average valuation that I think Pete should be aiming for here. Mm -hmm. I just think that you're better protected as a team from 
a guy like Pete, who I, I just am not sure that, you know, he's able to age gracefully. And if he does age gracefully with the bat, I don't think he's going to be a, you know, a first baseman deep into his thirties. I think he's probably a DH, but like, mm-hmm. I think that you can get away with 23 to 25 million a year as an average valuation. Obviously at the peak years, you're going to want that to, to be more like him making in year four or five, probably 30 million. Yeah. Uh, but I'm okay with five years. I'm okay with six years. Like it's yeah. fine if he's making five one twenty or six one fifty. I think yeah. that's a lot more stomachable than eight two hundred, because eight two hundred, while it's the same AAV, it's just it's a lot of years for a guy who's going to be thirty five thirty six when that ends. Mm-hmm. And by the time it ends, I mean he might he might start declining at thirty two because of his you know, general physique and, and physicality and uh, lack of a skill set outside of power. Sure. Like, I know yeah. he's, a, he's a good hitter. He's a good hitter. Mm-hmm. I don't want to make it seem like I'm down on Pete Alonso. I love Pete Alonso. But, like, yeah. it's, it's a power-first approach. There's lots of swing and miss, obviously. And mm-hmm. sometimes when he's not getting his base hits and he's more of a 240 hitter than a 270 hitter, you're looking at a guy who maybe is not the most valuable player in the world. Sure. I still, I don't know. I'm still a little bit of a sucker for the on-base percentage. You know, he's it's career 349. It was 352 last year. It's good. It's not his a, worst year. It's right? good. It's and not it was, elite, right? Well, I mean, I'm looking at it more so in comparison to his batting average as a differentiating statistic. Like his worst year, 2020, the average was 231, but the on-base was still about 90 points higher. I think that there is a skill there that can hold up. I think we could both agree regardless that this year will be a formative year in defining what he will be worth after his contract year. Because if Pete Alonso performs the way he did last year, and he's one of the best first basemen offensively in baseball, he might even command more than 25 million average annual, even if we're still looking at something in the five to six year range he could become like more expensive. Do I think that matters to this ownership group? No. Um, as long as his physical is fine. And he has been like, I mean, I think the physique point is important, but he also hasn't been someone that's really wrestled with that at all yet. Um, he's played full seasons like four, you don't want to count 2020 probably, but 2019, 2021, 2022, he was pretty healthy. Um Again, like we'll see. Maybe this is the year that we start seeing cracks. Um, but it, I think it could also be the year that we see like an actually legitimately good power hitter with a a real knack for getting on base. Um, you know, you said it, defense, athleticism, that will always be a problem. You'll always have to account for the DH thing. But I think that the Mets are probably they geared a lot more towards that going into this season and it worked in their favor, right? Like Mark Hanna wasn't a a, a, a very you know he didn't really have the athleticism to play his position he had a terrible arm and we had bat. you know we were concerned about back issues most of the year and Eduardo have- Escobar was not a very good defender right teams will you know look at the Phillies too right their, their defense is kind of not a factor for them um, and they still perform well I think that teams will start to I think the Mets too the other thing to consider and then I'll get off of this soapbox is that um 
a lot in meant very much in line with the way that they're spending money in general this offseason, the way that they for a moment wanted to put all this money into Carlos Correa. The Mets are very clearly insecure about their ability right now to develop a player, particularly a hitter who will do what Pete Alonso has been doing. Um, Kevin Parada, like, could be good. Like, we talk a lot about what we'll see in Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez. Beneath those three, it's pretty bleak. Uh, Jet Williams might be good. Jeff Will- Jet Williams might also not be good, right? Like, it's, I don't really see them developing anybody like Alonzo when Alonzo leaves. Yeah, um, I mean, if Jet Williams is good, he's not going to be Pete Alonzo. Sure. Right. Exactly. Like just he'll wildly he'll different, a different profile player. But I guess my point more so is that for the time being, while you don't really trust yourself to put together a guy who you can throw through an arb cycle every five or six years, who will do what Alonzo does, you need to pay the guy that's currently doing what Alonzo does. And I think the Mets will do that. Um, I, th- I would even wager they'll do that if it means giving an eight year deal. But I also don't think that that's something that a lot of teams will do right now. Um, But I don't know, like I said before, I think this year is going to be super instructive in what happens the next two, three years for him as a player. Uh, And particularly level, I don't think he's going to get extended this year. I think the sides are probably too far apart. There's too much information out there that we simply don't know yet about what kind of athlete he is, what kind of player he is. But um. I mean, all of that aside, I think I look at Pete Alonso the way I look at Brandon Nimmo, where I see someone that it would be really, really fun to continue watching in a Met uniform. Yeah, he's a guy that like the personality is is an intangible here where you kind of yeah. look at it and you're like, man, it would be cool to make him a Met for, for his entire life. Right. Because he I think he would give back to the Mets community in such a way that that alone is worth it. You know, he's so grateful to the Mets fans and he's so, you know, he's a, he's a total goober, but yeah. it's, it's endearing, you know, like you love listening to this guy talk cause he's so passionate about what he does for a living and, uh, and what he brings to the table for this franchise and for this fan base. I don't think, you know, I, I've been more negative, I guess, in this conversation, I think, but that doesn't mean I'm against extending him. In fact, I'm, I'm for extending Pete. Right. That eight that eight year number just you know gives me a bugaboo. It's it's that yeah. kind of thing. So like I, I'm with you completely. I just think that they gotta figure out the right way to do it, the right figure here. And I, I'm I'm agreeing with you also on the fact that I don't think it happens right now. I don't think that they're gonna extend mm-hmm. them right now. And I also think that it you know 2023 is a, is gonna be a very instructive year for Pete. What kind of player he's gonna be long term. And what kind of player he is right now. You know, if he puts up another 40 home run season and the defense is still able to grade out around average, like I know it was a little below average last year, but that's, mm-hmm. at least it's consistent. Yeah. He doesn't appear to be getting worse. If he gets considerably worse, then you're looking at a guy who in 2024 is a DH. Yeah. Yeah. And you're looking at what the Braves were looking at when they didn't have a Freddie Freeman anymore, where you're going to have to trade for you know, you'll, that's probably the best way you'll find another guy like him, like Alonzo. Yeah. Um, You got to find a first baseman elsewhere. And now then there's an even further question is if you have Pete Alonzo and he's going to be a D there's so much more to branch off from this, because if you have Pete Alonzo and he's a DH now going into 2024, then 
are you still going to really make a bid at Shohei Otani? If you're going to make a bid at Shohei Otani to be a part of your team, is he going to be a DH to protect his arm? Is he going to play the outfield more? If you bring in Otani, does that make Pete expendable on the trade market? You trade um, him for Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. Sure. Yes. Uh, or are you just going to stomach it with Pete at first base, even though the defense is declining because it's that much more worth it? Uh, with Otani on the team and and you know again you brought this up a little while ago we're not sure exactly how much the Mets as a team that is moving in a more analytical direction value defenses at a first base position Mm -hmm. you know there are teams that really just don't value it all that much at all so they might just stomach it and then there's the question of okay now we'll say Pete is moving to DH and and let's not consider Shohei Otani as a factor then how are you going to replace that first base position with Pete moving DH is Brett Beatty, maybe not working out as a third baseman defensively, but the bat has shown up. Maybe he breaks Mm -hmm. out enough to be a a consistent part of this team's future moving forward. Is he a kind of player that you can shift over to first base? If the defense at third is working out, sometimes it's not that easy. You know, I uh, I would love it if instead of sticking these guys in left field, we stuck them at first base. That'd be a very welcome change. Yeah, but then you have the, the this is a thing that also happens sometimes with these corner infield or you know corner guys outfield mm-hmm. or infield. Uh, they can't play first base because first base people think first base is easy. First base is hard to quote money. It's ball. incredibly hard. Exactly, you knew where I was going with it. It's incredibly hard. Like uh, Alec Bohm for the Phillies. Sure. Alec Bohm is not a good third baseman. Mm-hmm. But when the Phillies tried him out at first base, he was even worse because it's all about footwork, and he was tripping over his own feet. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's another question. There's just a lot going into this right now. So we mm-hmm. got to see where we're at with Pete as the season progresses. And as we move forward in 2023 and into 2024, because the landscape of the Mets, the landscape of Alonzo as a player, it can all change. Yeah. And, and there's oh, a lot yeah. of question marks. But yeah. if it I makes mean, sense I'm to now, extend him, extend him. Yeah. I'm now kind of thinking about if the Mets had decided to make J.D. Davis a first base option, and I'm getting a little depressed um so yeah i don't know maybe that's a point to move on on i think that we're we're pretty much on the same page as far as what's going to happen with pete i think there's no debating that once he gets extended if he gets extended uh the mets will have done something that prior ownership really didn't do well with like right and reyes um where you keep a guy you keep a group of guys that fans identify with and identify with that team and you allow them to define the team's personality. Like, I think that that really does go a long way, especially when you're simultaneously marketing yourself as a team that will spend all the money in the world. will get anyone that's out there and bring them aboard. Like to be able to do that and preserve the identity of a team uh, is very hard to do. Um, It's something that we saw Steinbrenner's Yankees attempt a million times over and only get one world series out of um i think it would be good for you know steve cohen's legacy steve cohen was at the thing too we didn't even mention that he was at the awards dinner oh yeah he was Um, one of the first presenters that's right i think he was was, uh, the first presenter yeah he was brian hoke had a lot of jokes about uh the carlos correa physical um we didn't get on that either but buck joked about him not taking his physical which that got that that elicited a pretty uh a pretty hearty laugh yeah, and then he then he gave Justin Verlander a fist bump and said Justin passed his. That's right. Justin did pass his physical. Good on Justin Verlander. Um I don't know. Are you uh are you do you have anything else to contribute? Would you care to remember some guys? 
we can remember some guys for sure. Let's do I that. Know, you go. You go yeah. first. I still gotta. I gotta think a little bit. All right. Well, in preparing our overview of the awards dinner, I was looking through my program. Um, as we had mentioned, Sarah Langs received the You Could Look It Up Award that is designed to recognize an accomplished an accomplishment not previously honored by the New York chapter. She was the recipient in 2022. I'm looking at the recipient in 2021, and I I can't believe it, but I don't know if you can read this or if it's going to be. Is it going to be backwards? Can no, it's not. 2021. Can you read is, that? Is that Mike Baxter? That's Mike Baxter. Mike Baxter. And I did my research on this because I couldn't believe it the first time I saw it. But it was, in fact, an award that he received for running into the fence and preserving Johan Santana's no-hitter. You can look it up. He did that. Um, I've, I've super seen underrated pinch hitter uh, and Whitestone native Mike Baxter uh, gets talked about a lot and simultaneously, I feel, doesn't get talked about enough on those really bad early 2010s Mets teams. Uh, he sold out. That was that was a great catch. Um, and it arguably cost him his career. Um, yeah, just reminded me of Mike Baxter, made me think about Mike Baxter. Um, I hope he's doing well. Uh I should figure out what he's doing now. I feel like he, I might've read about him like working for a team in some capacity, he's, but that he's the, uh, I can tell you exactly where he's at right now. He's the hidden coach for Vanderbilt. That's, that's an awesome gig. And he's that like, so he's great. Good. Apparently he's a good coach. Yeah. Like, yep. like maybe he can work his way into pro ball as a coach. That would be sick. That's a good place to go back to, too. I mean, Vanderbilt's a clinic. Um, everyone really everyone knows that but yeah I mean Vanderbilt they're obviously they're more known for like pitchers uh mm -hmm. but obviously it's a great program it's still yeah. considered one of the best programs around and like I I didn't have any Vandy guys on my team this summer on the Cape because like I want I wanted to ask about him you know I wanted to ask about Mike Baxter um, I never got that opportunity to uh to chat with like a Vandy hitter about Mike mm -hmm. Baxter. There were only a couple of like Vandy guys that were out on the Cape um yeah. this year. There was that oh man, the center fielder Enrique Bradfield Jr. He was out there. He was fun. I got to see him a, a couple times. But I, I, I think a one name that is such a cool name. He's so fast. Yeah, he's so fast. But Bastard yeah, it Mike was, Baxter. Uh, yes, faster than Mike Baxter. This is a guy who I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but he like stole 50 something bases without getting caught in that's the spring season. That's cool. Bring back the stolen base. Yeah. Bring back, He's, bring back the, yeah. That's, um, a first, that's a first round draft pick right there. Uh, my guy. Yes. Similarly, if we're going the New York local route, a guy who he showed up on my Twitter timeline yesterday. I, I'm sure you saw this because it was floating around. It got it got uh, two thousand some odd likes, and you know the baseball Twitter world is a pretty small uh, community. Yeah, I so think I know I, where you're going. I hate to starting nine post because it's a barstool podcast, but they they tweeted name a baseball player from the two thousands. That's the tweet, and obviously it's it's you know we've done similar tweets before. It's uh, it's cannon fodder for remembering guys. It's an engagement yeah. trap. 
Someone quote tweeted it, the guy I'm remembering today, who was a Met for about a month at the end of his career. He's from Smithtown, New York. He's currently the head baseball coach at Hofstra. Led them to a uh, an appearance in the NCAA tournament this year in baseball in his first season with them. Mm-hmm. He retweet quote tweeted this, this tweet, name a baseball player from the two thousands with his own name on his own Twitter account. It's Frank Catalanato. Frank Catalanato. What a name. That's a name. Just <laughs> Frank Catalanato. That guy was Frank always going to be in that at some point in his career. Yeah, he he wasn't uh, very good with them. He was thirty six. Leave him alone. He was yeah. like, you know, he, he had broke, some years where he, he broke. Was... He broke camp with them. Yeah, after being a minor league roster invite to spring mm-hmm. training, and uh, yeah, he was not very good with the Mets. He was DFA'd on May tenth of twenty ten, and uh, upon being designated for assignment. They brought up another favorite on this podcast to fill his roster spot. It was Chris the Animal Carter. They did. They did. Wow. One legend for another. That's, that's, God, that's like a Star Wars level timeline. It's a That's crazy. I'm looking at Catalanato's B ref right now. As a man, Frank Catalanato hit 160. Across 26 plate appearances. He had four hits and 25 at-bats. With a They walk. should have just given him more time to get going. That's not a lot of at-bats. You know, lifetime 291 hitter. Dude, he hit over 300 three times in his career. Good for Frank. Yeah. In each of those were in like substantial plate appearance samples. Like the amounts of, if you were to sort this by plate appearances each season, in the four years that he got the most plate appearances, his slash lines, he batted 299 in the year he had the most plate appearances, 330 in the second most, 300 in the third most, and 301, 301 in the fourth most. The range for plate appearances here is between 475 and 535. These are substantial samples. If the Mets had given him a full season, I think he could have hit 300. I won't expound upon that. I will not address how old he was. I will not address who else was in the outfield at this time. It was literally Angel Pagan, Carlos Beltran, and Jason Bay, who were all making more money than him. Um, he would have hit 300. Maybe. He should have played him. It, one of life's greatest mysteries. Yeah. He had New a- York native. I mean, being from New York, you should have given him more playing time. He had a four-year period in his career between 2000 and 2003 with the Rangers and Blue Jays in which he hit a combined 303 averaging 109 games per year mm-hmm. with an OPS plus at 116 across those four years an OPS of 842 getting on base at a 371 clip with 94 doubles, 13 triples, and 37 home runs across those four seasons combined. His best season in that period, 2001 with the Rangers, 330, 391, 490, triple slash line. Only 11 home runs, but he had 31 doubles and five triples. Mm-hmm. OPS 882, OPS plus 128. 
best year in the big leagues. That's a good Frank year. Catalanato was serviceable. That's a that's a Jeff McNeil year. Yeah. Yeah. Could have given him a, a five-year $63 million extension. Right? We know he's McNeil's club option is definitely getting picked up. This is a five-year extension. Oh yeah. Um, God. What a where was he at this baseball writers associate? Right? Like this guy should have been on the ticket. He had just been in New York, you know, with that the little bit of media that he did, I assume, while they were uh actually chatting about this extension. You know, he went Oh, I was talking about Frank, but yeah. Oh, McNeil's you're talking about Frank. I thought you were talking about Jeff. No, but McNeil, I think that would have been cool if he'd been there. Yeah. All right. Well, that might be Sick. a good place to pin put a pin in it. Agreed on a lot today. Agreed yeah. on the on the episode number. Um uh 111. 111. Just, just kidding. 109. Let's split the Yeah, difference. I'm sorry about that. That was that was not my finest moment writing the script. Um nine more days till pitchers and catchers. Let's do it. We'll probably that'll probably I assume be the next time we chat. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah, you'll see us. You'll hear us yeah. again. Probably. Not Perhaps. Right. Maybe. <laughs> probably. Who knows? Honestly, we're taking this week to week. It's cool. This was episode 110 on the Pleasant Good Evening podcast. And folks, this one's in the books. He's Jack Hendon. I'm Sam Lebowitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant good evening. Mm-hmm.